Bem-vindos ao Type Theory for All podcast, where Type Theory goes beyond inference rules. This is your host, Pedro Abreu, and in this episode, we interview John Saracino and Rajan Walia. John is currently a postdoc at Cornell University working with Greg Morissette, and Rajan is a last-year PhD student at Indiana University working under Sam Tobin Hochstadt. Right, in this episode, I have two very special guests here with me. They worked with me at Galois in, on last summer, so not summer of 2020, summer of 2019. We have an extremely good time. Today with me, I have Rajan Walia. Did I say your name right, man? Yep. Welcome. And right. on the other side, I have John Saracino, also known as my chess professor, You, dude, you got you got me so addicted in chess. I cannot stop playing anymore. <laughs> I hate you, man. I hate you. No, I'm kidding. I, I love you, dude. So I was looking. I was looking in your website, John, and I really like your party. What's that? Is a party banana guy? Oh yeah, that's um no, that's the that's the party parrot. Yeah, and then I put a, a Brazilian flag over it. I found a party parrot with Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Well, because like, because like, you're supposed to put this favicon on your website, and yeah, yeah. it's like, like, what are you gonna put? Are you gonna put like your school logo? Or are you gonna put like, I don't know, some random lambda? Like, I guess you can do that, but I, I figured a party parrot was like the thing that I most um, personified with. For those of you guys who don't know what a party parrot is, just go to the website. It's go to.uscd.edu/slash tilde john. Slash, and you're gonna see it on the favicon, that small icon on the top of the screen, and it's it's hilarious. So, Rajan, you are at Bloomington, and you and you're at Indiana University, and you work under Sam Tobin Hostad. Did I say his name right? Close enough. Fair, fair. So, John is at Cornell in Utica, New York. So, okay. How about we start about talking? How did you guys end up interested in doing PL research? How was your path, and like, did you guys work something during your undergrad? What were the experiences? What? How did you guys end up doing PL research? Gonna go first, Rajan. Yeah, sure. My, I think my my interest in PL sort of started by myself. I, I remember in my undergrad we used to have a course on Lisp. But it was like more Lisp and AI from the old times, which I didn't, really didn't like it that much. But after a while, I got back into it by like doing the SICP by myself. During I was I was. What's that? Is a book? Yeah, SICP is a, this old scheme book. Um, it's famous for people mentioning it and not reading it. <laughs> um, yeah, I was at I was working in an industry. I was I had like a software engineering job, but I was like really bored, so I was doing this on my own at at the end of the day. Relatable. Yeah, and so and then after that, I sort of like find out people who are still like interested in the same sort of things, and here I am working for Sam, who's a full time. He works a lot on Racket, which Racket took a lot of ideas from Scheme, and Racket is a programming language which does a lot of things different and a lot of things similar. So I'm still like doing something similar uh, from what I wanted to do when I was like at, uh, sitting in my room reading that book and thinking about what I wanted to do. That's really cool. So wait, so did you 
Were you working at Bloomington back then? Like, how was this application process for you to um, kind of work I, with Sam? I think I sort of like it. I was in India, so I wasn't in US. So I didn't really have contact with people in person. I just like, you know, Googled and figured, found out what people are working on, which people work on these things, like look at their research and then sort of applied based on that. So like coming in, I wasn't still like my, my PhD path wasn't still concrete. So like a lot of people start their PhD, they talk to the advisors, they know like what kind of research they're going to get in. I just had like sort of rough idea about that I wanted to learn more about these these things. It's actually very similar to what happened to me too. I was there in Brazil and like I just Googled a bunch of professors that I, I, I thought were doing some cool stuff and, you know, just, just applied. And did, did you have a master's before going for a PhD? No. Me neither, me neither. So it, it makes things even, even kind of more obscure, right? Like you have absolutely no idea what you're trying to do and then you go to talk with your advisor and he's like, yeah, I'm doing this stuff. Do you want to join the, the team? And yeah, let's do it. It's going to be fun, right? Yeah. Talking to a lot of international people, students in US who are doing PhD, a lot of us have like sort of like similar experience, taken like sort of similar path. So I assume for you, John, it was it was not like that. You, I assume you like you already knew what you were trying to do and it was a smooth transition from your undergrad. I'm assuming, I'm really assuming here. Uh, there's, there's some truth to that. I did my undergrad at a liberal arts college that was relatively small. I, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a thing for liberal arts colleges to have like one or two token PL faculty hanging around. What's a, what's a liberal arts college? What does that entail? It, I think traditionally it was meant to be like you get humanities education as part of your degree. In, in my case, I went to this place called Harvey Mudd College and there's actually very little humanities there. It's mostly um, a technical school. But but the key thing is that like the class sizes are really small. There's a lot of faculty for uh, the amount of students. And for the most part, it's all about teaching and education and less so about research. I guess I guess there's some exceptions. I don't know if you remember, but one of our one of our coworkers at Galwa was from Tufts, I think. Chris, I believe. Chris Pfeiffer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Tufts is, is similar in that it's like a liberal arts school, but it's it's different in that they like do research there. Um, whereas at most liberal arts colleges, there's like not very much research. It's, it's probably the, the other big distinction. So I guess for me, I got into PL because when I was starting my undergrad degree, I was probably interested in, in math. And I happened to take some programming classes and I, I found those interesting. And computer science as a whole is like interesting and fun. And I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself like, like a hardcore mathematician by, by any stretch of the word, but it was really, it was really mind blowing to me that you could use like math to describe the semantics of computer programs. And that was kind of how I got into PL because after I think my sophomore year, there was a research opportunity open and the description was, Hey, you can use math to describe what happens when a program executes. And I was like, wow. That's friggin' <laughs> wild, and that was that was just like a very mind blowing concept to me um, right. as as a as a undergraduate. So that was I think I saw this on your CV. It's on US uh, University of Santa Barbara, right? You did as research, right? Yeah, that was actually that was actually a year later. So it, it took me a whole year because my class my school didn't actually offer many PL classes, and I I was not all that much of a self directed student, so I. 
had to do like about a year of independent study with uh, faculty at my school to catch up with like even the bare minimum of doing PL research. But yeah, so I guess I got into the research community through Santa Barbara. So there's a faculty there. His name is Ben Hardikoff. He's really awesome. And he basically does like systems and PL together. I think he's most famous for this paper on scaling static analysis to millions of lines of code. It's like the grasshopper and, and the hare, I think. It's the name of it. So I got started in, in actual research through like a research experience with him. It's pretty cool. And then you started the masters or something like that? Uh, yeah. So I guess I took the undergraduate to grad school track, like without stopping in industry in the meantime. So uh, after that, I got ready for applying to grad schools my senior year. And I didn't really know what I was doing. So my undergrad advisor had me like Google around and try to find PL people from academic websites. And let me tell you, it's a, it's a very mixed bag. Like lots of people are great about having an academic website that represents their research interests. And, and lots of people also have like really old academic websites. <laughs> and, yeah. and sometimes it's like, it's not even people, it's not even individuals fault. Like they might have a great website, but their school doesn't maintain like a list of faculty or, and you're like, how am I supposed to know, like how to find people? You actually, you actually make it sound, you've, you've actually put a lot of effort into it. What I did was like, what are the cool people working on cool stuff on this? I don't know. I was in this conference this one time and I, I looked at everyone that I met there and like, oh my God, these guys are doing some really cool stuff. Let's, let's look him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like you do that sort of thing, but also, yeah. I don't know, at least for me, I only met like, I went to one conference, I think, as an undergraduate and I met maybe two faculty mm -hmm. and, and a bunch of grad students, but like, so I knew the faculty, <laughs> but in terms of like actually finding like decent PL programs and like solid faculty, I had no clue how to do that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Knowing now it's like, it's a very different story, but back then. Now you mentioned that you weren't actually a very self-directed, like you didn't know much how to study by yourself. How did that change? How did that develop towards your PhD? Because... I feel that in a PhD, you really, that's the, the most important thing you have to learn is how to learn by yourself and from very scarce sources sometimes, like, right? Yeah, totally. That's a great question. I've never, never really thought about that. I'm not really sure when or how it changed, to be honest with you. I think, I think the more I read in PL, the more I like kind of figured out what sort of research topics I found interesting and that made it much easier to self-study. I think part of it was also like I personally got more academically curious like as time went on. I really can relate to that like as you dive deeper into the topic that you like you start thinking more about it and asking the, the questions you want to know and then you like start digging into it so in a sense it's, it's kind of a uh, something you learn as you go right and you start getting better too. And that happened to you too Rajan? Yeah I mean I think it's sort of also, you don't really have any other choice. When you're an undergrad, you have classes, you take those classes and you learn those stuff. And when you're when you in grad school, you try to find out the things that are interesting to you and not like you're not going to find a class that, are, that is being taught at your school for that specific stuff at that specific time. So you just like figure out what books you can read, what papers are interesting. Sometimes you go to your advisor or go to a professor who's, who you think knows about that stuff and ask them, okay, I'm interested in this. What do I do? Do an independent study. And it's really funny when later, later on, when you're actually getting deeper into your field and you start asking questions that was never asked before, 
and you go to your advisor and he looks at you and he's like, I have no idea how to solve this. Let's let's figure it out together. <laughs> yeah. But you actually touched it in a, in, a, in a very interesting point now. So you were saying that we don't have classes to teach this stuff. I actually was interested in, in touching in this topic in this episode. So for those who are not familiar, when we are doing a, a PhD, you usually take some classes in the first couple of years, especially if you don't have a master's, right? So in my case, we have to take, I think, six six classes in total, and you have two years to, compl to complete that. How was the, the system on your universities? I had to take a lot more than six, but yeah, I had the same thing about two years. I don't remember how many classes there was. It was more about like credits. I had to have like specific number of credits, but there were some specific classes that were compulsory, but I, I just had a lot of credits for independent study. But even other than that, I did take as many classes as I could in the beginning. Really? Because I, I particularly try to avoid as many classes as I put, like try to not take classes. I hate classes. I'm so glad I'm done with my classes. No, I, I did sort of the opposite. I think the first year I took like even one extra than what other usually students were taking. And I was done pretty early. And I even have extra classes, which now I sort of regret taking, but not really because <laughs> most of my extra, I just like took math classes and philosophy classes because I was interested in those kind of things. That's actually and pretty cool. I didn't really like the compulsory classes because they were like, okay, you have to take the algorithms again. Yeah. Which just I was not really interested in. But taking like moral logic with uh, math professors or philosophy and like log foundations oh, yeah. of logic and those kind of things, I was like, yeah, I, you don't even have to tell me to take those classes. I'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I wish my, my university has had those. You know, I wanted I wanted someone to teach category theory here in my university, but nobody's doing that in my here at Purdue. So. We had we had a class last last to last semester on category theory. I think I at this point, even though there are classes I want to take, I would rather finish. Yeah, yeah. You're you're in your last semester, right? So yeah, you have more options in the beginning where you have lots of you. You're still trying to figure out, and it's better to actually take more classes so you know more stuff to figure out like what is the stuff that's interesting out of all right. that more stuff that you see i agree i agree how's how's the structure on your university john at uscd it's it's a mix it's uh it's more classes than you i think we had to take 12 classes when i was starting there's also less pressure to finish it early i think i think the only deadline is you need to present a thesis topic at the beginning of your fifth year. And I think even then you can still be taking classes. So, I mean, people will yell at you if you if you don't take your classes fast enough, but it's it's not like an actual thing. Well, they, they're going to do that anywhere. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I've, I guess I've heard I've heard two different ways to, to take classes as a grad student. I've heard so one one piece of advice that people give is to like focus on your research and take as few classes as possible get started on a research project early this is this is totally plausible this is this is something i did and i i mean i enjoyed my first research project it was pretty cool there's an older student leading it so i kind of just had to like show up and turn the crank and it was a way to like get into research as a profession the other story i've heard is similar to like like rajan's advice take a bunch of classes and get it all out of the way, figure out what you like, and then uh, get started on research after that. That's also totally plausible. It, it's successful for plenty of people. I think I think it depends on the student, and it also depends on like whether you have access to uh, a decent like research project. Like if you have an advisor lined up, 
and your advisor has projects that that need like work and you don't really know what to do you can just like you can just ask them yeah and they'll give you something to do and it may or may not be interesting but at least you'll learn something yes and and also they have they have a very directed focus they they want a particular outcome and that's different from coming up with your own idea that you don't even know what you're trying to do like in the end of the day right like sometimes sometimes you're just like have this broad idea of what i would be interested to solve but you don't you don't know how this is gonna actually finish like turn out in the end but when an advisor has already has uh, an ongoing project that he has out he expect definite outcomes then that actually is 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 a much smoother introduction to how research works right Yeah, I would say so. At least in my experience, like the first time you start a project on your own, it's very long and windy. And if you do that, like at the very beginning of your research career, it 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 could be rough. Yeah. I mean, I found it rough as my second project, so I, I could see it being even harder as your first one. Another so another thing that also takes a lot of of our time, other than classes, when you were starting, not necessarily just when you started, but some people do this all their other PhD, which is being a TA. So for those who don't know, TA is being a teaching assistant, which is pretty much you are going to teach somehow, either by being charge of a lab or being charge of office hours or both, or even sometimes you're going to give lectures, right? And the reason why that happens is that, well, you kind of have to be paid somehow, right? Like that's how many times we are paid. So either we are going to be a, a teaching assistant or a research assistant. And a, a research assistant is when you are able to be paid by your advisor, which has is sitting on a on a nice grant, and you're gonna work, give give a piece of your work to to accomplish whatever he said that he's gonna accomplish in the grant, right? So how was did you guys were you guys TAs or A's? How was that for you? John, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, yeah, I TA'd a fair bit. I think I TA'd, uh, so at least at UCSD for the PL faculty, it's common for the grad students to TA one quarter for every three. So mm. like one time a year. I think I did that. I think I did an extra quarter because I wanted to like experience TAing at the beginning, which. Um, Wait, so at USCD, your, your year is actually four quarters instead of two semesters. Like actually you are going to enroll in classes like four times a year. Is that how it works? Pretty much. There's, there's, yeah, there's four quarters. Most people, most grad students do not take classes the summer quarter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So instead they just do research. Um, oh, or oh you're counting summer and winter as well. I never count those. Well, winters, I mean, you can, you can pack a full quarter into winter, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you really, really want to, which UCSD does. Um, wow. Like, <laughs> winter is usually like three weeks, right? Jesus. It feels that way, but they managed to get like whatever nine academic weeks out of it. Impressive. I think it's because they they stretch winter late or something. But anyways, so at least for me, um, yeah, I think I think I TA'd like six or seven times, um, and I, I think that's relatively normal uh, at UCSC. I I found that pretty enjoyable. It was a yeah, it was pretty fun. It was good to like teach material that was PL material that I was nominally supposed to know, especially at the beginning when it's your first time either taking or teaching the class. You might have like heard it once in lecture, but you probably like don't deeply understand it. And then you have to like get up and give an hour long discussion on um, like compiling some code. And you're like, huh, do I know how a compiler works? Oops, I guess I kind of don't. So Maybe it's time to learn how a compiler works. And then and that's then what like, I say, right? The the ultimate way to know if you actually know something is trying to teach it. So yes. 
Totally true. And I think, honestly, some of my most enjoyable moments in grad school were in office hours because you'll be, like, explaining a concept to someone and they'll, like, maybe they'll be struggling for a while and then they'll eventually get it. And it's just a very rewarding experience. Very gratifying. The, the downside is, like, grading. Grading sucks. I, I don't think I've ever enjoyed grading. Oh, yeah, um, no. It's just such a, a grinding experience. You just sit there doing the same thing over and over and over. <laughs> Totally. Even when it's like scripted up for like auto grading, even then it's like not not all that fun. Uh, I I think the other experience that sometimes people have. So at least at UCC, even even when people are funded, like even when they're working on grants, um, they'll still TA usually once a year. This is this is because the the faculty have to teach once a year, so they they hire their students as TAs. Um, yeah. If, if you're not, like, working with a faculty on a grant, then you might have to TA, like, every quarter, especially when you're an older student. This is, I, th- I think it's, like, somewhat common at UCSD. Yeah. So those are, those are, like, the two experiences. I really tried my advisor to pull me up to be his TA in, in, a P- in his PL course, but he could only have one TA, so the other student got it, like, because he's older. So he had preference over... It's actually something very institutional. The professors here, they, they can just like, hey, can you can you give me this student to be my TA? And the the, the department is going to try to to fit things out. And it can be a little bit of a frustrating experience sometimes because, you know, like there is only so many TA, like so many courses and so many people that you, and you end up TAing sometimes something that you're not, you didn't really, really want to get. But at the end of the day, you, you end up in something... A good enough match, right? So things work out in the end. Yeah, it, I think we had the opposite situation at UCSD and that there were like more TA slots um, than PhD students. Um, so it's, it's it, like it's very common for our program to hire master students to do some of the TA. Um, I, I don't know if it's the same way at uh, yeah. Purdue in Indiana. Yep. Uh, I think we, ha- we have sort of some, something similar. It kind of depends on what kind of classes it as well. For some classes, it's easier to find TAs. Some grad for, for some grad classes, it's harder to find TAs. Like my advisor was teaching PL verification class, and there were not many students who could TA that class. So, I've I have t- myself have TA'd a bunch as well, probably like six or seven times, maybe more. And in the beginning, I used to enjoy it a lot, and I've been TAing the same class for a while as well. So now it's become a lot easier to do the mindless part of grading, but I still enjoy it, talking to students during either office hours or labs. And Paulette was like one of my students when I was TAing, and it was a lot of fun with her as a student because she had like a lot of amazing questions and um, discussions. I imagine she she always asks some very insightful questions. So yeah, Paulette and- also worked with us at, at Galois. And we were like this very, we, we were always hanging out, all of us at Galois, all the interns there. We had a, a really cool, amazing time together. And one of the class, yeah, one of the class I teach, this was what, the one with Paulette as well, is the introduction to C211, which we teach in Racket. And I've managed to rope in a lot of people in PL, in the PL side of things. They're like, oh, hey, you like what's going on here? Come to us. We'll have a compilers class later as well. That, that's been a here, lot of fun here, cookie for you come 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 <laughs> come to the dark side yes so then you, you were at TA a bunch of times that was really cool yeah for me I think so I actually actually really like TA I was I was actually an RA and I just I asked my, my advisor to 
cut me off and for me to go back and be a TA. It may sound a little crazy, but that's how much I enjoy TA. And like, I think having contact with the students is so refreshing. And it actually makes me feel so useful because when you're actually doing the, your research, I feel so dumb all the time. Like, oh my God, I, I don't know what is going on. I, I, don't, I cannot understand. I have to reread the same paragraph over and over again and do the same exercises to try to get that stuck in my head. But, when, but then when you go out and start talking with the students and he starts doing these very low-level questions, very introductory-level questions, and you can explain everything in such, a, such, a, such deep detail and with such insight. And I'm like, damn, I actually learned something, you know? <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. And I think TAing sometimes gives you a good structure. It, it's helpful to TA once in a while to get out of that uh, mindset of when you're like an RA, you're sort of like doing the same thing again and again. Sometimes that can get a little, you know, it's it's hard to, it's a good idea to have a fresh insight once in a while, even when you're doing research. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. Last summer, I was just working on, on an internship and I was literally just in my room coding eight hours a day, sometimes 10 hours a day, you know, like, and you just lose sense of, of everything, right? Like of, of reality when you do that, it don't have contact with people and it's, it, it, it's not a very good idea. I don't recommend, don't do that at home, kids. Yeah. <laughs> I think right now everyone is doing that at home. Yeah, man. That's like the state of programming and research right now. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, we have a vaccine coming out. That's that's really good news. I have a friend that vaccinated yesterday. That was like the best thing I've ever saw in my Instagram the last since March, really. I'm so happy. Things are going to go back to normal if, if things allow. So another thing that is very important in a PhD life is your relationship with your advisor. <clears throat> you guys have... so. I am actually really happy that I that I got to work with Ben. And I think our, our dynamics is very good. He is very laid off. I know that a lot of advisors are very hands-on, like actually very hands-off and allow you to do anything you want and do your own thing. And you just come to him to show your results. Other advisors, they're going to, they, they have very solid expectations on what you're supposed to be doing and working and the way you should be working. And some advisors can be, can be it's, it's like a spectrum right there. So for me, how I work with Ben is like, he comes at me and he's, he asks, okay, where, what are you going to be doing this semester? What are your ideas? What are your expectations? And how do we fit in here? Like, what are what is the plan here? And then he's always going to try to shift things towards a direction that he believes that's going to work best, right? I think it's a really, really cool dynamics with me and him. Like, really works out well. How was your how was your experience with your advisors? So you were John, you worked with with Nadia Poliparkova and Sorin Lerner during your PhD, right? Mm-hmm. How yep. did that go? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed working with both of them. Um, I think, whoa, I, I guess there's like two dimensions to the the advisor relationship. There's um, like you said, hands on versus hands off, and I guess there's also like how much FaceTime you get. And I think I think usually hands-on is conflated with like seeing your advisor a lot, but I don't, I don't think that's like necessarily the case. So I, I guess my experience with my experience with Soren is that he is relatively hands-off. So at least with him, I had like a ton of freedom about like, as you said, okay, at the beginning of every quarter, you figure out what you're going to do and you're, you need to like come up with 
basically a, a mini research agenda for that quarter. And I found that that was fairly, I, I found that that was like intellectually good. Um, it was probably not the best for like actually getting publications. <laughs> it was pretty enjoyable. I guess in contrast, my experience with Nadia is that, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess she was, she was a mix of hands-on and hands-off um, because I had a fair bit of freedom with her again and like coming up with the initial idea. But I guess there's also, Nadia was also much more hands-on in terms of like how felt like research should be conducted and like what she felt were like, like research goals. So I, I think it was a good mix because I, I ended up working with both of them simultaneously. It was a good mix of having like Soren for like super, super laid back, hands off, big picture style advisor. And then Nadia, like very detail oriented, like, hey, here's the things that, that should be done to, to make this research go forward. Right. Yeah. Nadia is such such a cheerful person as well. Must have been a really cool experience. Like she, she seems to be always happy. I, I'm very I'm always impressed when I'm talking to her. It's just so cool. <laughs> yeah, totally. She um she gets excited about everything, which is yeah. Um, it, it's a blessing, and <laughs> let me put it. It's also sometimes it's a curse because you'll come up with like some horrible <laughs> idea, and you're like, hey Nadia, what do you think about this? And she's like, yeah, that's great. And you're like, oh. That's <laughs> Yeah, I had that. I had that way too many times with Nadia, uh, which is not. It's it's not. I, I, I'm not trying to like say anything bad about her. Um, of course. Yeah, but, but whereas <laughs> like if you bring that up with with um, someone who's a little bit more skeptical, right? They'll be like, Yeah, no, this is this is not a great idea. You gotta <laughs> you gotta improve this one. <laughs> I like I like Ben how he he's very what's the word kind of polite with my bad idea. He's like, hmm. Maybe we should put more thought into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> What's your experience with with Sam, Rajan? I think my uh, Sam is even more polite. He'll be when he'll ask me like a bunch of ideas, so he doesn't have to turn down one, and he can like choose. <laughs> Very smart. Uh, and that's always. I think that's that has been really good. Even just like him asking me, he would never ask me like, what is the one thing you want to do? He would ask me like, what are the three things you want to do? And then he'll give me three more things that we could do and then like figure out from there. And those kind of the dis uh, discussions that I've had with him and another pro uh, professor, Ching Shi Shan, who I work with a lot. And he and Sam, they, we, we, we would have usually like these kind of meetings together once in a while to figure out like, what is the direction we want to take? In the next couple of months and it's always been like not just one thing but like okay here are like six things what is something that is interesting to all of us and something that could be counted as research not just something <laughs> fun <laughs> and so in that terms i think my advisor has been pretty hands-off because he would it's not it's never been okay this is something that i want you to do and go do it it's always been like okay what are the things that you are interested in and how can we find something that you can do, which is sort of like in that field, in that mm -hmm. sort of area. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be interested in the long run to, to lead to good publications and all of that. Yeah. And I think advisors are pretty good at figuring out something. There's a, a lot of things could be sound, they sound interesting, but they not, might not be interesting research, right? You right. could, you could end up spending a couple of months doing something and that, would be interesting to implement. We are like all programmers and we like pro to writing code, but not all code can be counted as research. And advisors are pretty good at like figuring out like, what is something that's interesting research 
we can do. That's that's definitely very true. And the reason for that, in my point of view, is that they are actually inserted into this research community. They know what's going on, what people are interested. You know, like they've been reading a bunch of papers. They know what what are the good ideas in those papers, what are the papers with very bad ideas. So they have they have what we lack, which is the ex, the, the sheer experience, right? And that's yep. the, the most beautiful thing about this relationship between the advisor and the PhD. And also, I, I believe it's very important, actually, to find, to have a good relation, like to find a, an advisor that you believe that you're going to have a good relationship with because it's like, it's almost a marriage, right? Like we're going to be together for at least, at the very least, four years. Yeah, yeah. And it should be a, a lot more than that, but. <laughs> and you spend a lot of time with your advisor. I think during yeah. my PhD, most of the time I've spent talking to somebody about research is my advisor. So if, you, if you're not having productive discussions and you come out of a meeting with your advisor all upset, then that's probably not a good sign. Yes. And it's better to figure that out earlier rather than later, right? Yeah. And I think for the second dimension that John mentioned, which is like how much you are seeing advisor, it's also important there that you sort of find a balance which works for both you and your advisor. I know like some people really like seeing their advisor. Like my advisor has like couple students and some students meet with him more often, some students meet with him less often. And it's he's been open to anything. So like if you if you want, you, he'll meet with you once every day, which I don't really want to do, but wow. it works for some people. I've always had, I've always changed that sort of uh, intensity. So like if there's a paper deadline coming, I'll ask him to sort of like meet with him more, like maybe twice a week and get more, more feedback because you want a lot more things are going on when you're closer to the deadline and you want yes. faster turnaround. And sometimes you're like working on something and it's going to take a couple of days to implement something. You don't really need to bother your advisor and it's usually like, you don't want to like switch your mind from one mindset to another and would rather just focus on your research. And at that time, your advisor and both you should be comfortable. Okay, we, are, we don't have to see to, today. We don't have to talk. I know what you're doing and you're doing good. Keep on doing. Yeah. And I think, yeah, this is, this is, there's an article by Matt Mind where it's like, you have to, in your PhD, you are going to have to decide when you're going to go solo and when you are going to um, have to depend on your advisor. There's a balance of when you want to, like, at some point, you are going to have to go solo. You have to write your thesis by yourself. Your advisor is not going to do that. And so you have to, like, figure out that's, like, something that takes a while. It, it takes time to sort of figure out, like, what is something that works for you and your advisor both. That's really cool. I don't think I've ever saw that article. Can you send me that later? I'm going to definitely yeah, also sure. link, link later on the description of the podcast. I would suggest go read all the Matt Mites articles about yeah, grad school. <laughs> All interesting. You guys cannot see this, but John is just nodding and like <laughs> very excited about this as well. Yeah, Batmite was, um, I, I read him a lot when I was an undergrad. I think he was like, he, he eventually moved into healthcare um, and like moved to Washington, D.C. and like got out of PL, I think. But back in the day, he was he like. He still does some. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, he was like the source of grad school wisdom at least like when I was going into grad school, he was, he was the thing that people pointed to, if that makes sense. Dang. Definitely. I'm definitely going to check that out. Sounds amazing. He also, I mean, he didn't ask, but he also, he also has a bunch of posts about um, uh, compiling functional languages and like doing um, CPS conversion. 
and I swear yeah. it took me like three years in grad. I like I still like don't really understand his CPS post. Um, and it's like he gets a CPS compiler and like forty lines of racket, and it's like Jesus, Matt, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> yeah, I still I still sometimes when I have to, I think when I was doing my compiler class, I had to do that. I used that as a reference because it's like very succinct cheat sheet about how to do CPS. You can just like go and see that code and do it. Very cool stuff. Very cool stuff. But now, Rajan, you mentioned something something interesting. Also, when we where you are working near near a deadline, it seems to me that there can be a lot of pressure to to like you know like wrap up a paper or finish a paper or even start writing a paper. How did you guys feel this pressure towards your during your PhD? Because for me, at least, I'm on my second year, and I'm starting to feel this very huge pressure from myself actually. That okay, I need at I don't know how it works in your universities, but here at Purdue, it's kind of expected that you're going to have at least three main author publications by the end of your PhD. That's like, it's a, it's a, it's a fair amount. It's a fair amount to say, to show that you did a minimum and to be able to just sit down and write your thesis, right? So I'm in this point of my PhD where I'm feeling if I don't publish this year, I'm going to be quite behind, right? How do you guys feel toward, during your PhD? How did that play, play around? How did that go? It's it sort of hit. It depends. Sometimes I feel really pressured. Sometimes I don't. Sort of also depends what kind of paper I'm working on. Sometimes I'm very comfortable with the paper that I'm working on, and I would be like, okay, this is. I don't really have something to worry about. And sometimes, okay, the first time I published my paper, I was with my advisor until 7 a.m. and we spent the whole night in his office working on it. That was like, after that, I think everything has been for me. Okay, like, yeah, if I can do that, I can do with this. So what happened there? Like, you didn't know how to write. You didn't know how to, what were the important ideas? Like, why did you? I think it was more about, look, we were trying to do some benchmark stuff. And oh. uh, it was like last minute addition and we had to do some coding for that. We had to oh, I see. So like, out. so it's more towards the end of the paper writing process. I thought it was at the yeah. beginning. I think in, in a life cycle of paper, every paper gets rejected once, once or twice. And the first time you're submitting a paper, it's a lot more pressure because it's all fresh and sometimes things are not complete and you're working last minute. But it's, it's not the same case every time because the next time you publish that same paper, you have gotten good reviews from first submission. You'll have, you'll have some idea about like what it, what does need to be done. And you're usually like in a pretty good spot after that. It's the first time that's kind of tough. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Totally. When it comes to like writing the paper and presenting the project, the first time is always like the most painful or the most effort at least. And also, like, if it's if it's your very first time writing a paper too, or like collaborating on on a paper, then yeah, the like I said, the first one is like the most strenuous, I guess. I think, I think when it comes to like the beginning of the paper writing process, at least for me, the most painful ones are where you've been working on a project and it's like still not really ready to go, and you like you don't actually have the research contribution together, but you want to like get it out there and get some feedback. I find those, I find that like difficult and painful because I feel like the paper isn't ready and I'm like writing it to get feedback on an idea. And, and yeah, that's, that's just like a very, it's a difficult process and it's like stressful. I think it's easier. It, it gets easier after that though. Like, so for example, like in my most, in my most recent submission, I think uh, we were targeting something like about a year ago 
And when we were first writing the paper, we only had like one really rock solid research contribution and the rest was like not there yet. And we just hadn't done like the research work and we were trying to write it up and it just like, it just was not, (laughs) we just had trouble writing it because we didn't have enough meat to like describe. And so like we couldn't write it. I mean, it's not that we couldn't write it, like we could write it, but we, it, it was just painful. Um, if that makes sense. And and honestly, like in that situation, I think the solution is just go back and like just work more on it and like <laughs> try to figure out what are the outstanding weaknesses? What are the outstanding problems? How can you make the research better and try to do that? I mean, maybe you can like present it informally to people that you know and see what they think and like ask for their honest opinion. Or maybe you can like try to write a workshop paper, something like this. But at least in our experience, like we, we put it back in the research oven for like another three or six months and we ended up with like another research contribution. And after that, it was much easier to write. It was it, instead of being something that was like, oh, we're really forcing it. It felt more like, OK, yeah, we're just presenting like the state of our tool and our project. And it's like, it's really easy. You just like say the things and then describe how you evaluate it as opposed to like... It feels like that's how most papers should be done, right? Because like, that's the idea of the paper, right? Like present something cool that you've done or something cool that you've accomplished and it's not been accomplished before. And here's the cool things that my, my thing does and it's new, right? And many times we're just like trying to... That's how I feel. I'm trying to hack around with this cool stuff that I think it's cool. And then later on, we're going to figure out, okay, how can I sell this for the people to think this is cool too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the other way around. <laughs> yeah. I think I think my experience as a grad student is when, when I put the deadline first over the research, then it was not enjoyable. And I like really did not enjoy writing papers for those deadlines. It, it definitely happened plenty of times. And, and resulted in plenty of rejections and like painful reviews, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. whereas yeah. like when it, it I, maybe, maybe this is like somewhat um, stereotypical, but like when you put the research first and you just like work on the research and then are a little bit more realistic about waiting to submit it until it's like actually ready, that that's a much more enjoyable experience. That's interesting too, because now depending on the work you're doing, you want to publish, there, there are the specific venues that is more suitable for your work. So sometimes even though you have to wait until your, what, whatever you're doing is kind of ready to be presented, you also have to have this balance as well, because you can only publish in this particular venue once a year, right? Like for example, if you want to publish at Pop Oats, you have to submit it by what, July, right? Like May or July, something like that. But right. Totally. Yeah, I don't know. I, I personally don't think you should ever, like, target a conference, if that makes sense. Um, I think so. No. I, I think there are a couple conferences. I think I think most PL papers can get into, like, one of ICFP, Popple, PLDI, and Oopsla. Like, I think I think those four are altogether, like, CPP. pretty... And CPP sometimes for depending, right? Yeah, totally. For for stuff that's like all about theory improving and all about formal verification, then you have to target it a little bit. But but even then, I mean, like there's been plenty of um, formal verification work and theory improving work at at like the top tier four. So I don't know. I and the, and the nice thing about that is like those deadlines are all across the year. So you're right. Um, you're right. And I think that might be intentional. You always. Also, like I think, at some point you're going to realize there's always going to be another deadline. You know, if you're not able to meet this one, like in two months, three months, there's going to be another one. If you target a specific conference, then it it's like more pressure on yourself because then you'll be like, okay, the next one is going to come in one year. 
no, I need to finish this by the, uh, by this time. Otherwise, so if you don't target a specific conference, you can be more relaxed about it. Totally. And a year is like, that's way, like if you already have a research project together and it's like half done, a year is way too long for a deadline. At least, at least for me, like if I give yeah. myself a year to do something, I will do nothing for like nine months and then, and then work on it in the <laughs> remaining three. Uh, maybe, maybe that's just me. Um, if I do yeah, nothing, no, yeah, that's, I, find it, I think, but, you know, like. I think that's human, how human works. There's <laughs> <laughs> an absolute truth on, on that. But actually, actually, that brings me to, to the next topic, which is work-life balance. Because, okay, we're going to sit down and start working eight hours a day and, and cold all day. And then comes the, the, the deadline and we're going to be working into weekends and maybe 12, 14, 20 hours. Like those, those very last few days are, are insane, right? So how, how do you guys balance your work-life? What were the strategies you guys could find that worked for you and how could you maintain your sanity especially especially now in this quarantine right like it's everyone's stuck in their homes and oof. yeah yeah i think we'll go rush do you want to go first so for work-life balance in terms of like publishing i think it helps a lot if you don't put things off for the last minute if you're working 20 hours like for a couple of weeks straight that's not good you're gonna get burned out and it's better to do slow and steady phd is pretty long you don't have to finish everything and we have already talked about like there's always going to be another deadline in a couple of months and don't you don't have to burn yourself out for just one deadline it takes time to figure out work-life balance in phd though because in the beginning it also like depends on people like for me in the beginning i was like i want to do all these different things i don't really have enough time because i was like taking classes doing ta at that time it's hard but once like you don't once you stop once you finish your classes, you have more time to do your research. Once, If you have an RA, you have even more time. So you can sort of like have to manage yourself around those things, not just because it's not in a vacuum. You have to, if, if you're doing something else that is going to take time, don't, don't be like, okay, I'm going to do eight hours of research every day. That's not going to happen if you're doing, if you're teaching or something. It, the time is going to go, the time you can spend on your research is going to, reduce a little bit and that's okay it also helps with your advisor talk to your advisor if you are working too hard and burning yourself out don't do that talk to your advisor advisors are always they'll they'll guide you they'll tell you what to do they'll tell you not to work too hard if you're working too hard well i think that depends a lot on the advisor too but hopefully if he's a reasonable person he will be able to tell you slow down like take some time breathe right because at the same at the same rate i also feel that it's kind of part of the advisor's job to push you a little bit, right? Like to push you off and make you work. Because we as students are always great procrastinators. And advisors know that because they've been students before as well. <laughs> so it's kind of their job to put a little bit of pressures on, on us. I, I feel like that. But it's, it's, it's a balance, right? If they put too much pressure, we, we're going to break. And I know people who has broken by their, has been broken by their advisors and it's not fun. It's not cool. Yeah, totally. I, I, I personally don't have advice for like work-life balance leading up to deadlines. But you just have a horrible work-life balance. You just work all your day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But let me put it this way. I, I personally, okay. I think that's... No, I, I was kidding. I have no idea how your, how your life and your work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at least so, okay. So for me, I tend to be very deadline 
oriented. So what I usually do is I work like relatively light most of the time. And then in the like month or so before the deadline, it, like I, I just give up on work life balance and I just just work. And honestly, like I, I think I think if you do that, you need to like enjoy it when you're doing the, the paper grind and you need to be somewhat conscious about it because like, at least for me, I find that like if when, when you say work-life balance, that, that means that like when you're in the rest of the year, when you're not like grinding on the paper, that means you need to be working and, and, and you really, you need to do at least some, like you can't be enjoying life all the time. <laughs> Just playing video games all day for three months. Totally. And, and like, basically the more you procrastinate, the more, the, the, the worse it is for you when you do try to get to the deadline. And instead of like being four weeks, maybe it's like six weeks of like 80 hour weeks. And that's just like not sustainable and like not doable, at least for me. So I, I guess I guess in the weeks up to like a deadline, I don't, I don't have much advice. But but before that, I mean, I think you have to like train yourself to not procrastinate. And how people do that is like up to them. For me personally, I generally am pretty good at being able to crank out code at like whenever um so what i'll do is i'll schedule the stuff that like i kind of would procrastinate on and i'll schedule that like in the morning and make myself do that like right after i wake up um and usually that means i have to like write or brainstorm or do reviews stuff like this um and i have to do that like in the morning and that's 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 how i schedule it for myself and then in the evening like i can do whatever i want and maybe that in, that includes coding maybe that means i'm playing video games maybe maybe i'm like going out for a dinner date or something and i think i think at least for me that that turned into a sustainable schedule i feel like early in my grad school life i i did not have that balance and instead it was like okay i'm gonna take a three-month vacation and not do a whole lot and then i'm gonna come back and attempt to do research <laughs> and like that's <laughs> i mean <laughs> That's kind of fun for like two months, but then you stress yourself out for the third month and then you stress yourself out even more like when you come back and then your advisor's like, uh, do you, do you like actually work? And it's, you know, I, I would not recommend that. I would, I would definitely recommend treating it like at least as a part-time job. If that makes sense. Sometimes you have to get it wrong to get it. Like you have to, to learn by your mistakes sometime. Like you have to figure out slowly what works for you. Right. For me particularly, I am a very routine oriented person. Like I'm, I, I usually say I'm, I'm extremely boring. I wake up at the same time every day. I go to sleep at the same time every day. And I usually start working at the same time every day. And that really helps me to maintain, you know, like the, the right pace that I know that works for me, right? But even then, I feel that I kind of burned myself out last semester. And ugh, I really didn't, I should have been more conscious about how much I was working. I was actually working a lot more than I could, could bear. And by the end of like four or five months, I just... I couldn't do it anymore. I woke up in the morning. I, I hated myself. I was like, what am I doing with my life? You know? Totally. <laughs> and that's that's what I mean. Like, you, sometimes you have to get it wrong to get it right and, and go back to the right path and figure out what does, definitely does not work for you. Totally. But as you mentioned, like, having, you know, like, planning and, and not procrastinating and that that is actually a really good strategy. Getting getting the hard stuff out of the way first, right? Like you're gonna you sit down and do the hardest stuff, and that you would procrastinate. And you don't want to do right now. Do them first because then afterwards you can enjoy yourself guilt free, right? That's really good. Well, the other thing is like it's usually not even stuff that's hard. It's just stuff that like you don't really want to do. Like if you actually exactly. look at the amount of time it takes you to do it, it's like oh, it's like a half hour, an hour, just yeah, you know, putting it off. And also to me, it has helped starting mindset to me i also do the something similar with as john mentioned i don't really like writing and i i've been last last couple of months i would say writing early morning 
not early morning, like writing. I've made a rule about like I have to write specific am amount of time in morning every day. And I mean, like you're writing your thesis. Is that what you write? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, I usually use a timer. I would be like, okay, I'm going to sit down and this is the time I'm going to write and I'm going to start writing. And you just like for, force yourself to do something because you, as John mentioned, in the in morning, you can do stuff that you don't want to do. And I think everyone's willpower is also limited. So you have to spend that willpower somewhere, so spend it in the morning on things that you, do, you know you should do, but you don't want to do. You actually bring a a very a very interesting topic how how hard it actually is to write to write down your thesis i can see that it's not something you want to we want to do right like it's just kind of feel like a dull work of putting all the pieces together sometimes that does that make sense i mean john has finished so john can do say more and then i'll say like all the things that i have not done yet <laughs> <laughs> um that's funny right <laughs> Yeah, totally. I guess, well, I guess in contrast, so I think I think the common conception, and I would say it's a misconception about grad school is that like, yeah, you go to grad school, you take some classes, and then you're locked in a room for five years, like while you write a thesis. And like, that's not, that's like not how it works at all. I don't I, like when I talk to people who are not in grad school or in academia, this is this is their image of, of like, getting a PhD is like, which I mean, it might be true for like math, but I, I don't think it's I mean, even then I don't think it's realistic. But anyways, at least for me, so for my thesis, I had, I think two thirds of it were already written up and like ready to go. And then the remaining third was completely unpublished and unwritten. So um, I, I actually had to put a fair bit of effort first to do the research for the third section and like actually get that work done and then to like write it up and present it. And like I said, it, it wasn't, it was stuff that like wasn't ready to be published at a conference um, or maybe even a workshop, but it was original research and it took some effort. I don't think that was any more effort than like a normal, a normal publication. And, and if anything, the writing was even less effort because at least in my case, I already had a job ready to go. And my the understanding with my committee was that like, so, so, so what I did is I emailed my committee before I started working on this third part. I wasn't sure if it was going to work out or not, um, what we were going to get. So I emailed them and I asked, Hey, like, Hey, is it okay if I finish with just the two finished parts? Is that like kosher? And then I'll try to add on this third part in some semi-polished state. And, and they all said that was fine. So I would, I would recommend doing something like this if, if you're uncertain with how your committee will react, because at least for me, it like, it took a bunch of stress off of it. And it meant that like, I was, I was just doing research for myself and like trying to get stuff together for my own, like, just because I wanted it in my thesis, if that makes sense. And I mean, that was, that was a fair amount of effort to like do it. And part of the research like was very speculative and ended up like not being validated. It wasn't stuff that like would necessarily last forever. And, and also, I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was that hard. I think, I think the two parts of like finishing up the thesis are first, you have to like staple all the papers together and get the law tech to compile. <laughs> and, and then you have to like, actually, maybe you might have to do some original research too. And I personally found, I, I didn't think either of these tasks were super difficult. I definitely found the stapling to be tedious. That um, wasn't a lot of fun. And I also found out that my university wanted the, the caption headings to be flipped. I think they wanted like table headings to be at the top of tables instead of at the bottom, which is opposite of like everything I've ever read. What you usually get. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that was the thing I discovered. But yeah, I, I think I think actually, to be honest with you, like preparing the final manuscript was probably the easiest part of the thesis and the research effort. I think the hardest part is like, doing the work that goes into each of those chapters to begin with. 
hang on. Some some people, what they do, they kind of staple together their publications and then try to come up with a nice story of how they come together, right? That's not how it went for you? So what you're saying is that you had to put extra work and have more details on other stuff? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I did that with, with two papers. And then there was this third bit of work that I'd been working on that was... That, that will eventually be published, but wasn't published or even submitted at the time of uh, when I was making my thesis, if that makes sense. I think I think that's somewhat common. Sometimes people do that. It depends. I, th I think if you if you do get your three papers published, uh, submitted and published, like by the time you graduate, then yeah, you just staple them together and you call it a day. And like, as you said, there is some effort that goes into like spinning a cohesive story, but it's, I mean, yeah, it's not that bad. I, mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people though, like, I don't know, getting papers accepted is not straightforward and yeah for i think i think for a fair number of people it's common to have original research in the dissertation and and for that like yeah it, it does take research effort and you do have to think about it and like prepare it just like you would like a normal paper if that makes sense yeah i think i've had sort of going through the same experience as john mentioned if you have you don't want to start from scratch for all your thesis you if you have publications, you start from there, you staple them together, and then you have a starting point. Um, talking to other people in like maybe sociology or English, then their uh, experience has been a little different from us. So we are sort of fortunate that we have this experience that we are we are getting validation sort of throughout our PhD, which is if your paper is published, that means that's valid research. And one other thing I would like to mention is like before, I think at some point in your PhD, you're going to be at a point where you talk to your committee and set expectations. You you set the things that you're going to accomplish and you're going to be like, okay, if I'm going to do these things, I'm going to write this stuff, I'm going to get graduate. You need you need to know that at some point. And that, uh, that point should happen a while before you, you are defending. And that's where John mentioned that he had like two papers and he was like doing the one third by himself. That's where you set up expectations. Okay, I'm going to do this much extra work. Even if it doesn't pan out, you know, I am going to do it and put it in my thesis and then that's going to be done. And that's, I think everyone sort of, that's where the proposal comes in and everyone's sort of experience has been similar. Try to do your proposal earlier, have, have all those things set up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point, Raj. I guess I kind of completely forgot about the thesis proposal part of the thesis. <laughs> at, at least for me, like when, when I was proposing my thesis, I proposed only the middle paper. It, it ended up not being like a very fruitful research direction. I, I guess, at least for me, I had to go back to my committee and was like, hey, is it okay if I add more stuff that's completely unrelated to my proposal? And they were totally fine with it. At least at UCSD, it's common for the, the thesis proposal and the final thesis to like be barely correlated. And, and Oh yeah, I think we've had like s something similar. It's just like, I think setting expectations give you some sort of relief that you know it's not an open-ended thing. Like, you know, like if you do all these things, you know, you know what you need to do. Because I think at some point in your PhD, you're going to get, you might get into a rabbit hole because there's always going to be more research, right? If you, and you've been working on something for so many years, you know, you already know the questions that need to be answered. You just have to figure out what are the questions you're going to do for your PhD thesis and finish it. You cannot do all the research. PhD is just a starting point for research. If you are going back, into academia then you, you can do that afterwards you don't have to do groundbreaking all the stuff at the same time dude i love how rajan introduced the next topic before me i don't even have to do any work as a host here you already introduced industry versus academia let's do it because okay here's the situation john saracino he's a postdoc so he's continuing academia i don't know yet if you're if your intention is to be a professor or not 
But Rajan is dropping all of this. Crew Academia, let's go to industry. I, I'm going to make money. How did you guys, how did you guys came up with this decision? What made you guys decide that, no, I, you know, I'd rather go back. You, you actually are contradicting yourself, Rajan. At the beginning of, the, of this episode, you, were, you said that you were, you were bored with industry and now you're going back to it. Come on, man. I mean, I'm not going back into the same industry. I'm sort of going into, my job is going to be working on LLVM compiler, so it's not exactly out oh, of PL. Man. And I think it's also like depends why you got into PhD. I wanted to learn a lot of stuff and uh, know more about these things. And that was my goal. My goal, I mean, I do like teaching a lot. I love doing TA, but I don't want to go through the whole postdoc and tenure track you can you can always come back and be a invited professor, right? That's always who who did that? Joe, uh, Joe Jose at Galois did it. Yeah. So David Christensen did it, does it as well. So like it's the thing. Yeah, definitely. And it's like whatever decision you make in life, they are not permanent. You can always do different things later on. But yeah, the most of most of them are not permanent. I would agree. <laughs> I mean, these kind of decisions, like okay, yeah, yeah, there are opportunities lost, maybe, but that's you just have to make sort of like you have to weigh your choices. Thing you figure out the, what what are the things important to you, which which side gives you more about more of those choices. Like I like doing research. I like doing cool stuff. I am not really fond of working towards a publication. And for that, industry is better in terms of like, okay, you don't have to worry too much about pub publishing. You're still working on compilers and, you know, doing the optimization stuff. And those kind of things are what is interesting to me. And I can do that without the extra whorehead, which is, uh, I think, not everyone gets to do. And I've been fortunate enough to sort of like get into the PhD in a field that is also, you can also do that in industry. Not everyone has that option. Uh, whoa. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I guess at least for me, um, I, I think I got into academia because I, I enjoyed PL and I think I'm, I ended up staying in it because I, I enjoyed in some sense, there's like a lot, um, intellectual freedom that you get. And that's not entirely true because you're always like beholden to some funding agency or like there's some external pressure on like, Hey, we need to get these papers published. And it's the community that decides like, like what topics are interesting. Absolute freedom doesn't exist anywhere. That's, that's yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's that's learn. totally true. But but I mean, at least for me, like I'm not terribly motivated. Like I enjoy coming up with with things that are useful, and I like coming up with flashy tools. But I'm not like I, I guess I'm not so detail oriented that I'm like okay, we absolutely need to have a shiny plugin that works for every Excel spreadsheet for every version of Windows like ever. Like that's just not that's that's not something that motivates me. And and. I guess that's like my stereotypical image of academic academics and industry. If that makes sense. And and I guess I I really enjoy like the creative process of like coming up with new ideas and like attacking the weaknesses in existing work and like making making the current state of the art more accessible, more easier to use, more comprehensive. So I, I guess that's like why I'm sticking around with academia and pursuing this. Um, I think that's like sort of the promise of, of academia. It's also the case that teaching is fun. I mean, but but teaching is not like the most enjoyable. Like like there are things that are more enjoyable than teaching, like like research, which which is why I enjoy doing it. If that makes sense. So the postdoc is all about that, right? So the postdoc is all about just the, the raw research and contributing on different projects, right? 
Yeah, it really is. It, it's like it's like if you take grad school and you subtract out the classes and you like double the amount of research. <laughs> I think I think sometimes you do teaching too. You can buy out like a quarter of research funding with a quarter of teaching. I haven't I haven't tried that, but I think that's a thing. Um, yeah, you guys mentioned something that I found I find very interesting. It's kind of trying to figure out what works for you as well. Like, So one thing that I did, I, I took a bunch of internships to get this experience and be completely sure what I want, right? And what I figure out really on the middle of my Galois internship, I was actually considering very, I was really considering to try and be hired by Galois, honestly. I mean, it's just such an amazing workplace. People there is amazing, really cool doing some cool stuff and PL and you got paid fairly, fairly well, especially compared with grad school. But in any case, I realized that I am not made for eight hours, like nine to five job. I'm not made to go to the, and sit in a desk and do just do the coding for eight hours a day. You know, like I need the other stuff that happens in grad school or in, in academia, you know, like the teaching, I need the research aspect. I need the social interaction aspect. I need to talk to people in different directions, interact with the students, you know, like all of this makes me, makes me alive. So right now that's my decision as well. Like stick in academia. And I, honestly, this, this might be a hot take for the episode, but if you're not interested in going to academia, PhD might not be for you. That's what kind of, kind of they kind of convinced me at Galois. There are some people at Galois that has this idea very strongly. They 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 say this very strongly, but I don't know. On the other hand, it's all the PhD is also about the the quest, right? Like this, it's hard. It's a, it's hard to get a PhD, and you you only learn if this is gonna be good for you if you try, right? And and go for grad school for a little bit. But keep in mind that getting a PhD is, is, is very hard. I'm just in my second year and I'm feeling that already. It's hard. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that it, it feels amazing when you finish, right? Yeah, it, it, it is an amazing feeling. <laughs> it's really nice. Um... Dude, I think I'm going to cry the day I get my diploma. Like the day I'm accepted by, <laughs> by the committee, I'm like, Jesus, this was hard. <laughs> I think I think like the three happiest moments of my PhD time were at least for me like the first time that that like a research idea starts to pan out there's like this burst of like happiness and excitement and then the second time is I I was lucky enough to get buried during my PhD and that was like again a happy moment of my life and then the third one was like actually finishing and and finishing the defense probably not, probably not the day that the diploma showed up it was it was the day that I finished yeah the day you you defend and they say Dr. John Saracino, you can come back into the room. <laughs> well, right? I mean, for me, it was by Zoom, so it was like, I got a text. And oh. the text was like, okay, you can come back now. Dr. John Saracino. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure you found it as well. You read it. <gasps> yeah, yeah, exactly. Raj will probably tell you the same. Yeah, for those who didn't get the reference, what happens is that when you're defending, then you finish the defense. They're going to ask a bunch of very hard questions and try to roast you as much as possible because professors are great at doing that. <laughs> Some of them. And then after all of that is, is nice and done, they're going to put you outside of the room and you have to wait until they make the decision. Like, I don't know what they're talking there. I've never been in there. So I don't know what, what's going on inside the room when you're outside. But then they are going to open the door. And I mean, if if you went all the way toward and 
you could defend, you're going to probably be accepted because if you would not be accepted, your advisor would, would tell you, would let you know to not try and, and defend, right? So most likely they're going to open the door and say, doctor, your name and tell you to come in, right? <laughs> so that was a joke. But I mean, PhD is different for diff- uh, everyone. Everyone has, I think to do a PhD, you should at least have some idea of what you want out of a PhD. So if you want an ac- a life in academia, if you want a job as a professor out of a PhD and you're doing that for that, uh, you should know that in the beginning. Maybe not n- know that, but like at least have some idea about what do you want to get out of it. And I think a lot of people who say, don't do PhD if you want to go into industry, think about it from money perspective, because like if you do a PhD and you're going back to industry, that maybe you, you are more motivated about money and you're losing all that money for by doing not working in an industry. To me, that was not the case. I'm not really int- motivated pro- by money that much. Um, I mean, it'll be nice to have a little bit, but I don't really... So, so for me, my goal for doing a PhD was different from my, my goal to, to PhD was learning all these things. I didn't really have the goal of, you know, being a professor. And I, if like the way I am and the path I'm going on, I would, if when I graduate, I would be happy to say that, like, yes, I did accomplish all the goals that I wanted to do during my PhD. I learned a lot. If I'm going back and maybe even later, in, even in industry, I'm going to do something similar to what I want to do. And that's not a bad thing. So basically what Rajan is doing is that he did all of that to be called Dr. Rajan by their co-workers at the industry. And that's not a bad, <laughs> if, that's your, if that's your goal, that's not a bad goal to, you know, to have. It also seems like, Whatever like works industrial yeah. researchers, um, it seems like the problems they work on a lot are a lot more interesting than like the stuff that you get as a code monkey at Google or Facebook or whatever. I don't know, maybe Raj can speak to that, but it, it does seem like it's a lot more, even, even even afterwards, it's more intellectually fulfilling. Yeah, and a lot of those opportunities you won't get unless you have a PhD. It That depends on different people, at least for me, it was not the case. So, And I also just wanted to learn a lot of new st- uh, all the stuff that I was able to do in a, P- in a PhD. Yeah, that's definitely the reason why I got in, in the PhD in the first place as well. I was working on, on stuff with Koch, and I'm like, I really want to, dive deeper into this. This is really cool. And I want to see what's on the other end. And then you discover there is no other end. <laughs> the, the the grind is infinite, right? <laughs> so yeah, anyways, this episode is very long already and we should probably wrap it up. Would you guys like to bring up anything to mention anything that was not mentioned? I guess on the on work-life balance, I the single most effective thing I found was like, no matter what you do, don't cut your sleep. Like, make sure that you always get enough Oof. sleep because that's, I think many things are important for happiness, but sleep is like the single most important thing for me. Not only happiness, it's actually one thing that keeps you productive. You need mm-hmm. your sleep. And at least for me, like in undergrad, I would get into the habit of like not sleeping all that much in order to get homework done. And I found that like, you just cannot do that for deadlines. You absolutely like, like it's way more productive to get eight hours of sleep and then work 10 as opposed to like working more than that and then sleeping less. Um, and, and also you're like much happier. So very well, bud. Any advices for people who are about to start grad school or starting grad school or me it's two years in? I think starting grad, grad school, there's already a lot of advice out there. Uh, there are a lot of blog posts about why you should not do a PhD, why you should do a PhD. 
I'm going to plug Matt Knight again. He has a bunch of blog posts about this as well, which I did read before coming here. And I think that's, if, if you are still thinking about it, figure out like what you want, like figure out what PhD offers you and then what do you want out of it? Because PhD is hard and it's going to take a long time off your life. If you're not, if you're not getting what you want after spending, you know, five years or six years, and maybe that's not worth it. Then. Yeah, totally. I think, I think the single biggest thing I wish I knew, like when I started is that, I mean, you, you might see this advice a lot that like a PhD is what you make out of it and say for grad school. And I, I guess I wish I had taken that to heart at the beginning it, because at least for me, that means that like, okay, if, if there's a deadline that you have to do, if you're like shooting for a paper or if your department, if, if your program has like some like deadline you need to finish, like you probably, the one way to take it is to like, just look at the thing and like, okay, there's like a literature review I need to be, that needs to be done in three months. Okay. I'm going to do that. Cause I have to finish my degree requirements. And that's like, that's like a mindset that, that can work, but I think it's, it's very important for your own like mental well-being to like figure out what you're getting out of these things and do them like for your own sake and like figure out some objective and like just own it and like really make sure that you enjoy it and that like you're doing something that that like you really want to do when you're going through with this and and how that works for for th- that can work differently for differently people at least for me it meant like okay I'm going to put memes into my into my presentations when I present them internally. And, and I'm going to yes. do stuff that like isn't in the format and I'm going to ask the people in my committee for research advice for uh, during a literature review, which is like not something that that you're supposed to do, but like is much it's much more fun and like everyone enjoys it more if you enjoy it. So um, yeah, that's that's the fun part of I don't know work that people don't realize. There's no actual rules like there are some, sure, but in general, there are some, what we think are rules are just like how people work. And you can actually bend them at your will. And if you play them and like you're comfortable doing it, people will play along, right? <laughs> so for example, I'm pretty sure that it's not, not everyone would think, you know, like it, it takes courage for you, for example, to, to put that, that very funny favicon on the top of your, of your website but it shows character. It shows that you are comfortable being yourself and you're fun, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that, that is a good example. I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah. Exactly. And I mean, like, like there is, there is something, there is a function for academic websites. And one way to think about it is like, oh, I'm in academia. I need an academic website. Okay. I'm going to put a website together. And like, you can do that and you end up with a website. <laughs> the, but, people cannot see Rajan's face. Um, He's like, mm, it, it's not very enjoyable. <laughs> was he talking to you? Yeah. Right. Anything else? Enjoy your PhD. As John said, it's going to be long and hard if you're not enjoying it. If you're doing a literature review, do, do literature review on something you like. If you, if school is forcing you to take classes, take math PL classes. Who cares? <laughs> uh, guys, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for this episode. I think we touched everything that I wanted to touch and a lot more. You guys are amazing. You have such experience. We, I'm pretty sure we all learn a lot from you. So thank you very much. I hope you guys keep yourself safe and have a great 2021. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for hosting. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. So that was it for our second episode of the Type 3 for All podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It was an awesome conversation. It looked like we were on a bar table 
If you have any questions or comments, leave it on our website, www.typetheoryforall.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to share it on your favorite social media. And by the way, huge shout out for MTTD on the programming languages subreddit. He shared the last episode over there and got quite a few likes. I really appreciate everyone who's giving the support. It really helps to keep me inspired to keep doing this nice work. It's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun. I hope you guys are enjoying too. And I will see you next time. Stay safe.